Hey everyone, it's Hamish from the Young Investors Podcast. Myself and Brandon are excited to bring you your weekly rundown of the latest business and investing news from around the world. A quick reminder before we get started, any advice provided by Brandon is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives, so consider whether it's appropriate for you. Brandon Vanderkolk is authorized to provide general financial product advice in Australia and is authorized representative number 1305795 of Guideway Financial Services Proprietary Limited, AFSL number 420367. Please see the description box for Brandon's financial services guide. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future investment returns. But with that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back. Hey, Hotter. How hello, you going, hello, hello. I'm doing What's well. Cracking? How are you? What's cracking? Yeah, I'm good, mate. Uh, not much. Another day. Another day in Melbourne. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty much it. Weather's but- warming up. Uh, some days. I mean, it's still very up and down, which is very annoying. But um, yeah, no, nah, it's been good. It's been going well. Mm. Yeah. You? What's yep. what's new? You, oh, I've I've actually been sick the last couple of days. So it was oh. you, you were sick twice in a row, and then now it's and your now turn. I've, yeah, now it's my turn. So there you go. Yeah. You've transmitted it over the airwaves. Yeah. Um, we actually got a comment. Uh, got a comment from somebody saying, "Hamish, did you ever get a glandular fever in your youth, uh, or Ooh. maybe as a teenager?" Because this person noted that they've had similar viral health issues that uh, that led to oh, worse stuff later. Wow. Maybe I'm projecting, but sounds similar to myself. Have you ever had glandular fever? Uh, yeah. Um, I I think I think so. I actually can't remember. I think I did get it in high school, but I don't, I didn't have anything that kind of came. I didn't get any sickness like after that happened. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, I'm pretty sure. I have to ask my parents. I actually can't really remember, but I, I vaguely remember getting. Getting glandular, but I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. Um, yeah, it, it knocks the, you out yeah, pretty bad. Virus, I, I do remember the virus yeah. remains in your body for the rest of your life, <laughs> though it usually does not cause further illness. Oh, there you go. Okay. Interesting. Well, usually, 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 usually. Yeah, except in your case <laughs> yeah. where it makes you sick every two weeks. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll check that out. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. How you been anyway? What you been up to YouTube wise? You been um, putting out content? How's it all going? Yeah, yeah. Getting back into the swing of things. Yeah, like I said last week, I've kind of got a few different ideas that I'm kind of testing out. I've got a few uh, the bones of a few videos that I'm uh, I'm, I'm working yeah. on at the moment. Um, yeah, it's a funny time on YouTube, isn't it? It's like it's always a give it's and take, hard, man. It, it's always like putting out content you know will do reasonably well or testing the waters in something that, you know, may flop or has the potential to take your channel to some other new level or some other new audience, you know, and introduce yep. them into your broader audience. So that's that's always the game, right? It's a bit of, it's a bit of uh, yeah. you know, do I take a risk on this video or do I play it safe this week? Or it's, it's a, yeah, it's a funny world. And it's so hard because, like, for me, if I just look at the statistics, I don't really want to make these videos, but... The statistics just say, do a Warren Buffett video, then do a Charlie Munger video, then do a Michael Burry video, and then go back to another Warren Buffett video. But if you like, and sure that that may work for a time, but if you just keep doing that, your channel will fade because you'll run out of things to talk about. And you see so many YouTube channels that do exactly the same thing. They get their moment in the sun where it's like, oh, it's the new thing. And then they keep doing the same thing because it's been working, but people get bored. They're like, okay, I've seen that. So it's always such a hard trade-off because obviously with us, it's business as well. So you've got to do stuff that, that works uh, business-wise and, and, you know, covers the bills, but you also want to do, you want to make content that you want to make. You want to make content that you think is interesting. You want to make content that you think people will watch. Yeah. And it's balancing these things 
and keeping it fresh yeah. um, so that your channel doesn't go stale. It's actually really quite difficult to do. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it, yeah, sometimes we get excited about uh, a, a concept or a topic that we want to do, but it's so obscure and we put so much time and effort into it and then it just flops. <laughs> yeah. Because it just hasn't hit that formula or that topic that people that follow our channels are interested in. So YouTube just mm. spits it out and says, well, no one else will want to watch this because your regular audience doesn't even want to watch it. And then you're like, ah. Yeah. Anyway, I think I think from over. a from a viewer perspective, it probably looks like you just we just kind of we just post a video and then post the next video. But it's really like it is really strange. You've got you've kind of got to like catch these like six month, three month waves of like interest because it's not even just evolving the content and making it better, but audiences and what they enjoy watching change it, it that changes. And like you said, yeah. like the you know certain content might work earlier in the year but if you just keep repeating that content over and over and over again it just uh eventually just fades in interest you have to kind of figure out well where's the interest now what's what what kind of video do people want to see and it is like a constant <laughs> it's a it is a it really is a treadmill or a, like a like a rat wheel <laughs> it's hard yeah it is hard to to do it well to do it successfully but, and in part yeah. that's why we're trying to just make some of the courses just to s- I guess the stabilize revenue. the revenue, smooth out yeah. the revenue of the business so that we can just do really interesting stuff. Maybe yeah. not every video hits, but at least it's interesting and yeah. it's varied and it's it kind of is stimulating, I guess. Yeah. But all in all, I am incredibly like we're incredibly lucky to do what we do. I don't know Super about you, lucky. but like every time I wake up and it's like every every time like yeah, sure, there's like struggles and that sort of thing, but it's like I would not rather do anything else than being able to do what we do. So mm. yeah, I feel very lucky. It's a challenge. But yeah, I mean part of the part of the the awesomeness of it is that it is a challenge. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's not just like, okay, I've got to wake up today, I've got to go and sweep the floor at work. And mm. then once I sweep the floor, I clean the windows and then I go home. And then yeah. the next day I clean the bathrooms and then I gotta do the vacuuming and then I go home. It's like yeah, it is stimulating and it's it's like it hurts when it doesn't work out. It's really difficult sometimes, but then when you when it does work, then you really cheat up about it. Yeah. That's good. 100%. It is a challenge. Yeah. All right, Hamish. What what are we talking about today, mate? Well, I've got uh we got a new update, a new report released out of the uh, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, talking about uh, giving all of their uh, sixth month uh, forecast for Australia. Uh, there, there's some data around Australia, but also the world uh, generally. Uh, oh, okay. And then I got a story about the Battle of the Stakes. There's two Australian companies with the same name at odds mm. in Australia. So there's a really interesting story there. This is so interesting because I have asked myself for years if this is ever going to cause an issue because I've lit- I've seen both of these companies. I've yep. worked with one of them. Yeah. And I've seen the other one and they're always, they're called the exact same thing. They have a slightly <laughs> different logo. And I'm like, there's going to be a time yeah. where yeah. ding, ding. Yeah. So that's interesting that it's coming to a head. Um, okay. And of course, the big news of the week, uh, the Sam Bankman Freed case is continuing. And we now have um, some more information on Caroline uh, Ellison's testimony. Ooh. So that is the, she was the CEO of Alameda Research and Sam Bankman-Fried's girlfriend for a time. So that is, that's got some very interesting stuff in there. Um, 
We've also got a little bit of news out of the Fed. We've got the Fed minutes um, just talking about exactly kind of what they are thinking over the next little while. And I got a bit of an update as well from the Birkenstock IPO because that happened last week as well. I know we oh, spoke wow. about it last week, so I won't focus on it very much. But uh, we'll talk about what happened when when they went bang. Mm. All right. Well, with that said, today's episode is brought to you by Seeking Alpha, your one-stop shop for stock analysis, market data, and news. Access expert analysis and news for thousands of stocks. View buy, hold, and sell ratings from members, Wall Street analysts, and Seeking Alpha's own algorithm. Screen for stocks using a variety of fundamental and technical analysis metrics. Access 10 years of financial data and company filings. And manage your portfolio by tracking your investments with price alerts so you never miss a buying opportunity again. Click the link in the episode description or head directly to seekingalpha.me forward slash young investors to try Seeking Alpha free for seven days. And you can also get a $50 off coupon at the moment. That deal is still running. So go check it out uh, if you're interested. And as always, thanks to those who are using uh, our links to sign up to these platforms um, and are supporting what we do here. Also, just before we get started with anything else, um, I saw a comment on the most recent podcast, uh, which said, asked a question, do you choose the ads that pop up on your podcast? Uh, If you have handpicked the ads, what criteria do you incorporate in the selection process? So I thought that just before we went any further, we have been experimenting by putting Spotify inbuilt ads into the podcast. Um, And when, so when you hear like a, like a, a, an ad that isn't read by myself or Hamish, um, that is just Spotify placing ads in the podcast. And we're doing that because uh, we want to just cover our costs with the podcast. We want to make a little bit of money so we can just cover the costs and keep the podcast running. Um, We don't have control over what ads get put uh, in the podcast then. Usually it's something to do with the topic. So it's usually something that we're talking about or financy or something like that. Uh, We don't have control over that. The things we do have control over are the actual sponsors that work with our podcast specifically, like ShareSite in the past, like Seeking Alpha, that kind of stuff. Yep. So um, I don't know if 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 you have uh, any criteria um, for sponsors, but for me, it's pretty simple. Um, I just make sure that it's something that I use personally or it's something that I genuinely think could benefit the people that listen to the podcast or or my channel. That's that's pretty much my inclusion yeah. criteria. Yeah, we, we get brands that reach out to us. Um, but I think for, for me personally, most of the ads that I've taken, except for maybe one I can think off the top of my head, have been companies that I've used and then I reach out to them and see if they want to do a deal. Just because that's yeah. generally the way that I like to operate. Like you said, like just yeah. products that I would use. Um, and usually it's products that I literally am using and I'm just trying to get yeah. a good deal for my audience or something like that. Yep. So ShareSite for the podcast, ShareSite, Seeking Alpha, um, both myself and Hamish use those products Yeah. Um, and we think they're good. So that's why we partner up with them. Um, but yeah, we get a lot of emails from other companies saying, hey, do you want, do you want to you know, pump this product and just stay well clear because a lot of it's yeah. like crypto stuff anyway, so we wouldn't do that yeah. anyway. But yeah, yeah. Hopefully that clears things up a little bit. Also, one one thing that's interesting, I don't know if mm. you've checked the Young Investors uh, Gmail account lately, no. but we get emails from like um, brand managers, uh, like influencer managers, saying, 
hey, exclusive opportunity to interview this person on the podcast. <laughs> and people are like, this is the crazy world that we live in on, on social media. There are managers of influencers out there mm. that are willing to pay us to feature people on the podcast, like to interview someone. How how nuts is that? Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I've, so yeah I've, I've seen we, we've yeah I've seen a couple of those come in, but it's uh yeah it's never yeah. anything particularly interesting. But uh, no, it, it is no. a crazy ecosystem that we're in though. Yeah, <laughs> it is bizarre. Yeah. yeah, it is bizarre. Um, and yeah, honestly, if if somebody is trying to pay to come onto this podcast, chances are I probably don't want to talk to them. Yeah, I don't know if we would ever... <laughs> I, I I can't... I mean, I, it, no, it would have would to be not. someone that we already kind of knew. Like, I don't know. If we were going to interview someone, it has to be someone we actually are interested in interviewing. I couldn't yeah. think of anything worse than interviewing someone just because you're getting paid and, like, you don't know anything about them before interviewing them. Like, the, in yeah. my mind, that is just the worst thing. That would just be the, the worst experience. I don't even care if they're paying yeah. you a ton of money to do it. It would just be awful. <laughs> so, uh... So, tell me... Born? Yeah, tell me more about... Binary options trading for eighteen to twenty year olds. Okay, yeah, you've got a you've got a course here. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Tell me more. Wow. All right, Hamish, let's get into it. Uh, we got to start at the start. We got to start yeah. with this Sam Bankman Fried stuff. Surely, um, yes, it's probably the big the biggest news of the week. Um, besides what's going on overseas, uh, um, but that's not not so much finance related so i don't think we'll be talking about no yeah i don't i don't like talking about wars no so i think yeah it's obviously very sad not, what what's yeah. what's happening but it's uh, it's quite a few um places outside of our expertise um so yeah. we'll, we'll leave that yeah. to to other people to talk about um but sam bankman freed the case the trial continues and caroline ellison um, is giving her testimony. So it says here, Caroline Ellison, who ran Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto hedge fund while also, <clears throat> excuse me, while also dating the FTX founder, has had her second day of testimony. Ellison, 28, pleaded guilty in December to multiple counts of fraud as a part of a plea deal with the government and is now viewed as the prosecution's star witness in Bankman-Fried's trial. In damning testimony on Tuesday, she said Bankman-Fried directed her and other staffers to defraud FTX customers by funneling billions of dollars to sister hedge fund Alameda Research. Wow. Assistant US uh, Attorney Daniel Sassoon wasted no time diving back into the questioning on Wednesday when court was called into session. So what have we got here? After previously detailing how FTX customer funds were used to repay Alameda loans, Ellison said Wednesday that crypto lender Genesis called back a bunch of loans in 2022 and asked to see a balance sheet. Because Alameda's actual balance sheet showed it had $15 billion worth in FTX customer funds, a big no-no, obviously, <laughs> Bankman-Fried directed Ellison on June the 28th, 2022, to come up with alternative balance sheets that did not look as bad, she said. Look, I'm no expert, but I think that might be a crime. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure that is illegal. That's crazy. <laughs> like a, I'm, I'm no expert, yeah. but I think if you murder someone, just, you go to jail. I'm just using a bit of common sense here. <laughs> no, that is crazy, though. Okay. Um, yeah, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it, so we, we've been waiting to hear this because, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it just, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, 
we're getting really into what the thick of it, it, aren't we? Yeah, it's um, we're finally getting to hear from the person who probably knows the most inside stuff about Sam. And of course, she you could potentially say, well, she's saving herself, so you know you can really trust exactly what she says. But if it obviously yeah. lines up with other evidence, then um, then you could probably believe her. But yeah, we're finally getting into the the weeds of. What's going yeah. on behind the scenes? Um, well, I think this is interesting because what gets said here then sets up the cross-examination mm. where Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers then get to grill Caroline Ellison on <clears throat> what she said in her testimony. So that's where it's going to get really interesting to see what they kind of hone in on. So this is yeah. kind of, I guess, the groundwork, like her recounting like freely recounting what happened. And then yeah. after she's kind of done this testimony, then it goes over to um, the defense who get to grill her on what she said. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried apparently directed Ellison to come up with these alternative balance sheets to give to this uh, crypto lender Genesis so that they could hide the fact that they had $15 billion worth of FTX customer funds on Alameda Research's uh, books. Ellison said she discussed her concerns with Bankman-Fried as well as top executives Gary Wang and Nishad Singh. She said the group brainstormed ways to make the balance sheet look better. After the meeting, Ellison prepared a number of different balance sheet variations to send to Genesis. Eventually, according to Ellison, Bankman-Fried chose the one that omitted a line saying FTX borrows, hiding $10 billion in borrowed customer money. Uh, some was netted against related party loans, she said, and some netted against crypto. That made it seem like we had, quote, like we had plenty of assets to cover our open term loans, end quote, Ellison said. Ellison told jurors, quote, she was in a constant state of dread, end quote, since she knew there were billions of dollars of loans being recalled that could only be repaid with money from FTX customers. Wow. She said she was worried about the possibility of customer withdrawals that could happen at any time. Quote, I was concerned that if anyone found out, it would all come crashing down, Ellison said. When asked by Sassoon why she continued with the scheme, Ellison said, Sam told me to. Uh, by October 20, uh, 2022, the internal balance sheet had liabilities of $15.6 billion, while the numbers they sh they showed the lender indicated just under $8 billion. Right. So <laughs> quite quite a discrepancy there. That's yeah. insane. Crazy. Yeah. But you can see, like, again, who knows exactly where the truth lies. Generally, you know, they say some you know, two people give their recount of the situation. The truth is somewhere in the middle. So we'll mm. see what happens. But um, I mean, it's certainly pretty damning. She has basically come out and said, yeah, the, the, a lot of bad things were going on. And like yeah. even the brainstorming, they, they sat down and brainstormed what should be on the balance sheet. I mean, no, <laughs> you don't get to decide what's on a balance sheet. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a document. It's a financial statement. It comes from your accounting, your accounting software. Yeah. It's like you don't, oh, should we, what should we do? Should we just rub out this line of the balance sheet? <laughs> how should we get those? The, how, where should we disperse this? It's like, ah, oh, yeah, I mean, it's messy. It's a crazy story, but somehow it does sound so much more believable that this happened than Sam's case, which is like, whoops. <laughs> like his, his defense is like, oopsie, oopsie, labeled account wrong. Oopsie doopsie doo. Oopsie, where'd the $10 billion go? Her story actually like sounds more credible, even though it is a crazy yeah. idea that this multi-billion dollar company is like, 
yeah, hang on a second. We've got these loans out. How do we how do we move some fudge some numbers <laughs> around? Yeah, yeah. Hang on a second. We shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I, like, I like your description, Sam Bakeman Freed. Whoopsie. <laughs> Where'd the ten? I've lost it. Where did it go? I can't see it. <laughs> I mean, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. oh dear. All right. Um, Ellison also spoke more about Sam Bankman Freed's character <clears throat> and their relationship. Ellison said Sam Bankman-Fried directed FTX and Alameda employees to use the disappearing message setting on Signal and told them to be very careful about what they put in writing because of potential legal exposure. In addition to a company-wide meeting about the Signal policy, Bankman-Fried also told employees that they should only write things on Slack that they were comfortable seeing on the front page of the New York Times. Isn't that something that Buffett said in the Solomon case? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's just he's just taken after Warren Buffett. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Make funny. sure anything yeah. you do, you'd be comfortable being on the front page of the paper. Uh, yeah, he- that's a... He is a good guy after all. <laughs> he is a good guy. No, obviously this yeah. is not good at all. Uh, in August 2022, Ellison said Bankman Freed blamed her for Alameda's finances, even though she'd been warning about FTX's expanding portfolio of venture investments and the need to repay FTX customer accounts. She said Bankman Freed told her she should have hedged and speaking loudly and strongly, it was her fault. On the stand, Ellison took some blame, admitting she should have done things differently. Quote, but Sam was the one who chose to make all the investments that put us in a leveraged position, she said. Wow. Um, Ellison said she kept a Google Doc that had a subcategory labeled Things Sam is Freaking Out About. (laughs) It included uh, raising money from Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, as well as quote, getting regulators to crack down on Binance, a rival exchange that was also an early investor in FTX. Bankman Freed wanted to see Binance feel some pain because he saw that as the best way for FTX to increase its market share, Ellison said. Another worry on the list was bad PR in the next six months, which Bankman Freed feared would interfere with FTX's efforts to obtain a license for futures trading in the US, she said. Hmm. Well, they've got a they've got a smidge of you bad PR. About now. Any, you got, yeah, a smidge of bad PR. I was like, that's 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 your top concern right now. Yeah. That yeah, that is yeah. interesting. That yeah, his top concerns are everything but the the fact that he's the mishandling fraud. the fraud. Yeah, except for the fraud. The big the big the big fraud right in front of his face. Hang on a second. What's that? But, the fraud oh, oh that doesn't worry me. But, no, but what's no, bi- no, what's Binance's that. share price right now? Is has it gone up this week? <laughs> like Oh man! Ay 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 ay. Yeah. Um. What else did uh, did it say here? As testimony continued into Wednesday afternoon, Ellison was asked more about Bankman Freed's concerns regarding bad public relations. She said he believed in a very proactive approach and spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with reporters. He invested in publications like Semaphore and The Block, a crypto site, and he considered putting money into Vox and Forbes, wow. she said. How okay. interesting is that? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, well, we're hearing um, more and more about this, right? That he's just kind of spent an enormous amount of money um, trying to make his image look really, really good. That's been like a yeah. just a main, even with FTX, FTX itself, I think he spent $50 million for like three hours of Tom Brady's time or something insane like that. Wow. Um, 
and he did that with a. I think Steph Curry had a similar deal. It was like thirty million or something like that for a couple of hours. Um, it's crazy. So he really kind of um, had this concept of just spend as much money as possible to get as much brand awareness, and that's what we saw. I mean, FTX came out of nowhere. I mean, all of a sudden it was an, they had FTX Arena and it was on Formula One cars, mm-hmm. and it was just everywhere all of a sudden. Um, yeah. It's just basically this huge amount of money. And, well, now we know where that yep. money came from. <laughs> They're paying YouTubers, influencers. Oh, um, yeah. There was yeah. one, I think one that got paid to actually do a full um, a full video on Sam Bankman Free, calling him like the most uh, the most humble billionaire ever or something Re- like that. Yeah, 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 so yeah. There's a, a lot of marketing, twisting perception, a lot of money spent in twisting perceptions of him. Yep. Um, Bankman Freed tried to cultivate an image of himself as a smart, eccentric founder and said he wanted FTX to be perceived as a safe, <laughs> wanted it to be perceived as a safe, <laughs> reliable, audited, and highly regulated exchange with the allure of it being offshore, Ellison said. Mm. He used Twitter as a, quote, very important source um, to help control the narrative around FTX, she added. So there you go. I mean, I find it so funny. <laughs> he he wanted FT, FTX to be perceived as safe, reliable, <laughs> audited, and highly regulated. If you want that perception, why not just make FTX? <laughs> why not just that? make it reliable? Why not just make it that? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Why not just make it safe, reliable, audited, and highly yeah. regulated? Well, it does just give you a, a window into his mindset, right? Like that's yeah, that, that, that's how his brain works. It's like it doesn't matter if it is safe or not. It's how people perceive it, which ultimately matters. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it shows in I pretty much everything like, he did. Hmm. I would like new money to be perceived as a safe, reliable, <laughs> audited, and regulated YouTube channel. Hmm. How might I go about creating hmm. that perception? <laughs> maybe, just maybe, it's around actually having the YouTube channel be a safe, reliable, audited and regulated thing. No, that's too much. That's too much work. No, no, no. Tom Tom Brady. Tom Brady. The answer is Tom Brady. Okay. (laughs) Wrong. Is it is it A? (laughs) Make it safe. Is it B? Steph Curry. (laughs) C Tom Brady. Or A or B and C. Uh, love it. Uh, what else have I got here? Uh, Bankman Freed's personal look, particularly his hair, was also important to him. Ellison commented on how he uh, dressed sloppily in 2022 and how he thought his hair was very valuable and key to the narrative. She said he swapped a nice company car for a Toyota Corolla because it was better for his public image. Mm. Ellison then went into her own emotional state. She said that when the business was imploding in November, she was on vacation in Japan. But she said that uh, she said that in signal messages with Bankman Freed that week, she told him that this was the best mood she'd been in for uh, the whole year. Trying to fight back tears, Ellison said uh, she went through a lot of mood swings and felt a sense of relief that she didn't have to lie anymore. Wow! After all the movement of FTX money. Uh, the company only had $4 billion to cover the $12 billion in customer holdings, she said. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So that's what was uncovered. Imagine being on holiday. <laughs> you're on holiday yeah. in Japan and you, know, you, know, you see the news that it's just imploded and you're maybe like the one, you're the second highest person on the list of like, yeah. who's gonna, they're going to come after you. Yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Uh, but yeah, so that was uh, just one, that was just one day of this trial. So 
Yeah. There's a lot more to come. There's a lot more to come. Yeah. And we'll keep you posted. Yeah. As I, it happens. I, I don't know how long exactly the trial will go for. I'm guessing probably the better part of a couple of weeks, I would imagine. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe not quite that long. Um, and I don't actually know if we'll hear Sam testify. I'm not sure. I, I would guess probably. I don't know. I'm not actually, know I'm not actually sure though. I haven't looked at, um, I don't know if that's public um, information yet. But yeah, this, yeah. I'm sure there'll be some, uh, there'll certainly be some more juicy stuff uh, to come, yeah. I think. Watch this space. Watch but this That is space. the update on Caroline Ellison's testimony. All right, yeah. Hamish. Way let's, too next, um, mate. Yeah, let's talk about the IMF. So the International Monetary Fund uh, released their uh, sixth monthly World Economic Outlook and Global Financial Stability Report. Um, hmm. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're every uh, every six months they kind of put together this report. And there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, specifically around Australia, which I thought we could talk a little bit about, and then um, some more kind of general uh, global uh, statistics. Uh, so they're forecasting 1.8% uh, GDP growth for Australia for the full year of, of 2023 of this year, which interestingly right. is down from their April forecast, which was 2.5%. So um, yeah, within like Ow. the space of just a couple of months, they've been kind of progressively downgrading that rating. And that's that tends to be how these forecasts work. They're not foolproof. No one's saying that they have a crystal ball or anything like that. Um but they do their best to estimate and then they kind of revise every few months. But yeah, it's been pretty much consistently um, revised down. Uh, they also downgraded their forecast for growth next year to just 1.2%, uh, which is less than half the growth they expected just a few months ago. So um, again, the kind of their outlook for the Australian economy, at least over the next year or so, um, has been kind of getting uh, progressively worse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and to put into perspective how bad 1.2% is, GDP per capita is expected to decline by 0.1% next year. So in other words, the IMF thinks that the economy, economic growth next year is entirely due to just population growth. So in, if there was oh, no one new right. coming into Australia uh, and if there was no population increase, just the natural population increase, then uh, the IMF is actually expecting GDP to decline next year, which is kind of a crazy statistic. So 1.2% is an extremely low amount, considering Australia has kind of this long history of um, growing their population pretty considerably every year. And even just that contributes in a meaningful way to, um, to, to GDP growth. Yeah, that's hectic. So we're not really going anywhere next year, no. according to the IMF. No, not really. <laughs> right. Not really at all. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of unemployment rate, uh, back in April, the IMF thought Australia's unemployment next year would be 4.1% uh, before rising to 4.7% in 2027. Uh, it now estimates unemployment will be up to 4.3% in 2024 and hit 4.9% uh, in 2028. Um, so slightly, again, they've kind of slightly worsened <laughs> their prediction for unemployment, but those unemployment rates are still very, very good. Um, I think mm. pre-pandemic unemployment was like 5.3% or in the in the low 5% range. So uh, they're still expecting unemployment to pretty consistently remain um, even below pre-pandemic levels. I wonder what goes into their models to for them to guess that it will go up from 4.1, 4.7, uh, and then will hit 4.9% in 2028. <laughs> It would be interesting to kind of see what's their methodology for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't I, know how yeah. you can guess what unemployment will be in 2028. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say at the end, but yeah, it's, I mean, you've got to take these kind of predictions with a, you know, massive bucket of salt, basically, because yeah. they adjust them every six months. It is interesting to kind of see where they're viewing things, but certainly they're very long-term views. Um, you know, it's it's not like you could really take that with any reasonable yeah. certainty. I mean, who knows? Maybe, what will inflation be in 2028? What will interest rates be in 2028? Yeah. What That, that yeah. will influence unemployment. Like, who knows? Yeah. I feel like yeah, it's crazy to chuck out estimates like that. It, I don't really it, get it. It is it is kind of crazy, right, that they still do that considering we just went through a pandemic and, you know, I'm sure that if we looked at their predictions from 2015 looking forward, they would have probably said that the economy was on this kind of smooth, stable path yeah. and obviously no one saw the pandemic coming, but then that's why you probably shouldn't be making projections five years out. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's bonkers. nevertheless, they'll try. They'll try. <laughs> It's like saying, I don't know, to you guys out there, like, what what's the value of your stock portfolio going to be in 2028? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. Yeah, well, you're going to draw a straight <laughs> line from here to here. Okay, yeah. It's yeah, gone up, gone up yeah. 1% in the last year. It'll go up 1% and then 1%. Like, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. silly. A bit crazy. Anyway, there yeah. you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> in terms of inflation, uh, they're expecting 4% inflation next year. Uh, so just kind of continuing on this kind of slow downward trend uh, and then not getting down to below 3% until 2025. Um, which would mean, uh, if that is kind of the, the trajectory that, yeah, we will have been in this kind of abnormal inflation environment for quite a few years, um, at that point, when did we go above the 3% range? It must've been in 2021 at some point, I believe yeah, maybe, it been, uh, imagine. maybe late 2021 or something like that. So yeah, if it's not 2025 until we're back below 3%, you're talking about like hectic you know, three, four three, four years of being above, mm. above target, which does compound and, you know, it's already having a pretty yep. significant effect, but, um, that's kind of yep. where they see. Well, I think, uh, th I think this, this is stats for America, but I guess can broadly be applied to most places. If you just look at not the inflation rate, but just the consumer price index over in America, mm. um, now versus just before the onset of the pandemic, things are like 20% more expensive now. Yeah, because yeah. it compounds so, so quickly. I it mean, does. If you get, yeah, yeah you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, it compounds. It works the same as investments or, or, or interest, yep. whatever it is. Um, you know, 5% one year and then 5% the next year, that's not 10%. It's going to be more like, I don't know, 11, yep. and, 11 and a bit percent or something like that. And then the next year is even yeah. worse than that. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is kind of crazy how quickly things can compound in your favor. And against you, like if you're investing, mm. compounding is fantastic. If you have credit card debt, it's atrocious, and it, it, you know inflation yep. is the, is the same. It, it all compounds, and it can get out of control quite quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, then there was some data around kind of mortgage stress in Australia, which has obviously been a, a very big front and center financial issue for every, a lot of places around the world, but particularly in Australia, given our kind of unique. Uh, mortgage situation where we don't have these long-term fixed rates. I guess it's not unique, but we, we certainly don't have it um, compared to the US. Uh, Australians with mortgages have uh, some of the toughest conditions of any country. Uh, they had the second high. We, oh, I should they? We had the second highest uh, interest rate <laughs> increase. I always talk about like countries like those um, pesky Australians. It, it's so funny whenever I talk about data, even if it's Australian, I talk about it like I'm like sitting on the moon, like like yeah. I'm looking down. You know what I mean? Like yeah. for some reason, I just like I'm not even like considering myself like Australian when I read it, which is kind of I'm bad. from Mars. <laughs> it's like I'm looking down. Oh, there though, there's Australians down there. <laughs> those, those bloody Australians. Yeah, go, no. mate. 
Um, <laughs> so uh, we had the second highest uh, interest rate increase of 3% uh, percentage points, only second to the US at 3.6%. Um, so yeah, pretty sig- we've mm. had kind of some of the harshest increases in interest rates. Um, but less mortga- uh, US mortgage holders ha- have felt that increase due to their long-term fixed mortgages. So the US has these kind of 10-year, 20-year, 30-year fixed mortgages. So even though they've had uh, a, a bigger percentage increase in in their in their mortgages, uh, Australians have, have felt it more on their income immediately because we only have at the most like two or three year fixed periods. I think up, maybe up to five, but uh, generally yeah. it's been pretty variable. So pretty much everyone, at least right now, even if you fixed your mortgage in in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, pretty much everyone now is feeling the the higher interest rates. Um, mm. And what that's meant is that U.S. mortgage holders, on average, are spending. of their income on their mortgage, which has increased. But Australians are at the top of the list uh, at 16.3% of their income is now going towards uh, their mortgages, which is um, by far the highest out of any of the countries that were being assessed. Jeez. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. Makes sense though. Definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um, this is slightly related. This was outside of the IMF's um, report, but a related story that I actually heard about on uh, Equity Mates that I was listening to earlier in the week. Um, CoreLogic, uh, which does reporting around the world on on, on the uh, real estate market, uh, they did a report on short-term sales of properties in Australia. So this is properties that have been bought and sold within two or three years. So in other words, properties that people kind of looking at all of the people who bought properties when interest rates were really low during you know 2020 and 2021. Uh, 8.5% as of the latest report, 8.5% of properties um, have been sold in the, within two years of purchase, um, which is uh, represents mm-hmm. an increase. And 16% of properties have been sold within three years of purchase now. So a very large right. percentage of properties being sold are those uh, from people who just fairly recently bought them. Um, mm. And even more kind of concerning is of those short-term sales, the percentage of loss-making sales increased from 2.7% to 9.7% in just a year. So in just a wow, year, okay. now 10% of those short-term sales, people who um, bought during the pandemic and are now selling, almost 10% are now selling below their purchase price, um, which is kind of a crazy statistic. Yeah, and that's not even taking into account all the other costs that come with buying and selling, the transactional costs. Yeah. So that's that's very interesting. So these are people that have really been caught out by the interest rate rise, I guess. Yeah. And have had to sell. Yeah. And you would imagine that probably a large portion of those are people who um, are within this kind of mortgage cliff that we've been kind of talking about, where a lot of people fixed two or three year fixed periods on 2.2%, 2.4% mortgages. And just recently that's that's rolled into, I think it's 6.6% is a pretty normal variable rate now. I've seen some up to 7%. So it's been kind of a very dramatic increase. And um, yeah, uh, as you would kind of expect, some people were not prepared for that. I think most, yeah. uh, the general stress test is for a 3% increase. Um, so if you had a 2.2% mortgage, you would probably test, or the bank at least would probably test for 5.2% and we're at 6.6. Yep. So, um, we're well beyond, um, you know, any kind of reasonable stress test that you, that, a, that even a bank would do, uh, let's say. So, mm. um, yeah, it's a pretty pretty concerning and i guess we'll kind of see it's interesting to see the story in the numbers though <clears throat> yeah. yeah and i think we're about halfway through the 
mortgage cliff. So about mortgage half. Mortgage cliff. Yeah, yeah. So there's still quite a few people who will be rolling over. And then the other thing to consider is just the lag as well. Um, it's not as if as soon as you roll into um, a higher interest rate that you would immediately be under, well, you would, you could be under financial stress, but it's not as if you would immediately have to sell. Potentially you would try and um, work things around and, 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 and make things work yep. for a little period of time. Hope that interest dip rates into your go savings. down, dip into your savings, hope interest rates go down uh, before, um, before actually selling. So the next, I think, um, I know I probably said this at the start of the year, but I think the next 12, six to 12 months will be very telling. We don't really know what's going to yeah. happen. I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be bad, but um, we'll, we'll see more of this data. The numbers are pointing in that direction now, which is the interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big increase in just a year from 3% to 10% is the loss making, the loss making sales. So that's, you know, a threefold increase in just 12 months. So um, yeah, that's rough. And, and it was a record. It was a, it was a, it was a record. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. <clears throat> wow. Wowee. Yeah. Yeah. Very sensitive to those mortgages, aren't we? Yeah. So hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we're, we're, we're through the worst, but we'll, we'll just see it as the data comes out, you know, every, every quarter, every six months. Um, but yeah, getting back to the IMF, um, that was all of the Australian kind of related stuff. Um, they also spoke kind of just more generally about, um, the world. There wasn't anything I too interesting. The only thing I picked out was just their projections for, um, who's leading the, the economies, the biggest economies in the world, who's leading the world economy. Uh, the U S is still projected to be uh, the leader for the foreseeable future. Um, they're not projecting any crossover between U S and China in the next, um, five years, um, oh, projected okay. GDP for the U S uh, by 2028 so in five years would be uh, $32 trillion. China is projected to be at $23.6 trillion, um, which for reference is about the size of the U S now. So, um, they're expected in five years to, to match the U S today. Uh, and then in third place, quite a bit further back is India, uh, at 5.9 trillion and then Germany, um, and Japan. Um, so that's yep. their projections for the, the state of the world economy, um, in, in five years. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's definitely two leaders on that list, isn't there? Yeah. It, and it's becoming more and more clear. India is growing very quickly, but they're a long way away. So yeah, it's it's very clear, and it's been clear that uh, U.S. and China are going to probably progressively get closer and closer to together, but certainly they're a lot further away from anybody else. Um, yep. So yeah. Gosh, don't tell Ray Dalio about this IMF report. He'll have a field day. <laughs> yeah. Do you think or he knows? Changing world do, do, order. Do you think he's seen it? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, Hamish. Just maybe. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, the. The Fed real quick, yeah, um, because they've just released their minutes of their last meeting. Um, not too much to say on this, just a little bit of flavor from um, from the data that we got or fr- from the decision that we got recently. Federal Reserve officials at their September meeting differed on whether any additional interest rate increases would be needed, um, though the balance indicated that one more hike would be likely, minutes released Wednesday showed. While there were conflicting opinions on the need for more policy tightening, there was unanimity, uh, unanimous, unanimity, unanimity on one point. Sorry, everyone just had to work that one through in my head. (laughs) Um, Unanimity on one point that rates would need to stay elevated until policymakers are convinced inflation is heading back to 2%. 
quote, a majority of participants judged that one more increase in the target federal fund rate at the at a future meeting would be appropriate, while some judged it likely it's likely that no further increases would be warranted. The summary of the September 19 to 20 policy meeting stated. The document noted that all members of the rate-setting Federal Open Market Committee agreed they could proceed uh, carefully on future decisions, which would be based on incoming data rather than any preset path. Hmm. So there you go, Hamish. Sounds familiar. (laughs) It does sound familiar, but yeah, Yeah. there's a. It sounds like there might be one more, but there is a bit of conflict, I guess. People saying yes, other others saying no, which yeah. is much different to what we've had where um, everybody said yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's definitely true. If you go back, if you go back like six months or 12 months, you can definitely see a big shift of like more, more, more rate hikes. And it was yeah. pretty, I don't know, I didn't think it was crazy for you to project that they were going to keep hiking. Now it's very much, yeah. I think everyone's kind of looking around at each other like, okay, who's going to make the first move? Who's going to make, try and like do something and hope it doesn't make a mistake? Which which mm-hmm. country is going to push a bit further and you know, and then be the one that goes into a recession so that everyone can be like, okay, let's not go yeah. too far. I think that's like everyone's not too sure. I'm sure the Australia's looking at what the US is doing. I'm sure the US is looking at what the UK is doing, and everyone's kind of looking around and just mm-hmm. trying to be cautious. I think. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, Another point of complete agreement was the belief, quote, that policy should remain restrictive for some time until the committee is confident that inflation is moving down sustainably towards its objective. Um, The meeting culminated with the FOMC deciding against a rate hike, which we already knew about. Um, However, in in the dot plot of individual members' expectations, some two-thirds of the committee indicated that one more increase would be needed before the end of the year. FOMC, since March 2022, has raised its key interest rate 11 times, taking it to the targeted range of 5.25 to 5.5%, the highest in 22 years. Wow. There you go. Hmm. Um, since the September meeting, the 10-year Treasury note yield has risen about a quarter percentage point, in effect pricing in the rate increase policymakers indicated then. There you go. Right. Maybe one more. Who knows? We'll wait and see. Wait and see. Beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah nothing, nothing more to add on, okay. on that one. Um, well, um, should we rock and roll into, I want to hear about the battle of the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is great. <laughs> I, I only read about this. Some would say the stakes are high. This, <laughs> the stakes are, are very high. I'll see myself out. They're very, yeah. You've been thinking about that all, all the, all the podcasts. I, I, have, <laughs> I have. Yeah. 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 Wait, waiting to release that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've got the, the battle of the stakes. Two Australian companies, um, will be kind of fighting over in court, um, in Australia over, the name. So I'll give a bit of context around the two companies because um, some people might not be aware of these companies. I'm sure a lot of people may have not heard of them because they're actually both pretty, pretty new companies. Um, pretty new, yeah. So the 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 uh, Aussie. Uh, so we have Stake.com.au, which is the Aussie share trading platform. Uh, it was founded in 2017 by uh, Matt uh, Lebowitz. How, how do I Lebowitz. Lebowitz and Dan Silver. Yeah. Uh, they're based in Sydney, and they're actually now the third largest broker in Australia, which is kind of crazy. Um, Hectic. Only founded, what, six years ago? And mm. yeah, the third largest broker. They have $2.5 billion in assets under management and half a million customers. So um, there you go. Massive uh, kind of Aussie share trading platform. Um, we've both kind of had um, 
deals with them in the past. We, we both are yeah. familiar with their company. I've met, I've actually met Matt and Dan. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't want to influence the story at all, but um, <laughs> they're really nice guys, actually. Yeah. I, I really like the, the, the guys at stake, the guys and girls at stake. They, uh, mm. they're a good team. Yeah. I like them a lot. Yeah. They're nice people. So, so that's, um, so that's the blue corner. <laughs> in, the, yeah. in, the, in the red corner, we've got stake.com. Uh, which is an online Boo. crypto casino, <laughs> cryptocurrency <laughs> casino. Boo! Uh, founded in 2016, so again, still a very uh, young uh, company. Uh, founded by a 27-year-old Australian billionaire, Ed Craven. Um, so both of young companies, both run by young um, Australians. One is a trading platform. One uh, is uh, an online crypto casino. It's actually one of the world's largest online casinos. So crypto casino, I think, makes you think, oh, it's probably this obscure little company, but they actually process tens of billions of dollars in bets. Um, it's an enormous it's company. everywhere. Yeah, I think um, everywhere. I was reading an article and it said uh, as of 2021 in total, so between 2016 and 2021, they'd processed about $50 billion in bets, which is Jeez. astronomical um, in a five-year period. It's an average of $10 billion in bets a year, um, and I'm wow. sure they're a lot bigger um, since then. Um, mm. So what's the story? So Stake, the share trading platform, there's going to be a bit of confusion here, but Stake, the share trading platform launched uh, a legal action in the fed, in a federal court uh, in August to seek to enforce its trademarks and to stop Stake.com, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, from using the name for business in Australia. Uh, they allege that the casino group, Stake.com, has been uh, breaking Australian consumer law and has misled consumers uh, through the use of its brand in Australia in its marketing, including sponsorship of the Alfa Romeo team, the F1 team, mm, uh, and the yeah. sale of apparel. Um, so that's kind of what they're alleging, um, that they're essentially misleading customers, making people think that uh, the two brands are related, that the two stake companies are, you know, one in the same company. Um, mm. A spokesperson from stake.com, the, the crypto gambling site, said, we are aware of this frivolous claim lodged in federal court by Stake Shop, which is the actual uh, company name, uh, which in part claims that our global Formula One team sponsorship impinges on their ability to sell trucker hats, <laughs> which is a bit of a, oh. is a, bit of a light dig <laughs> at them. Uh, we're proud of the global Stake.com brand. As a group, we abide by the laws of the countries in which we operate uh, and do not offer our Stake.com platform to Australian customers. Uh, we believe the, the claims have no legal merit and will vigorously defend our rights. Um, so that's mm. kind of their their, their response. Um, so Stake the Gambling site actually doesn't currently operate in Australia, um, uh, but the court proceedings of this this Stake versus Stake um, trial have revealed that they do actually have plans to expand here. Um, so first of all, they actually tried to buy the stake.com.au domain from the trading platform. So they reached out, the crypto casino reached out and, and actually tried to buy the name from them, um, which obviously right. didn't happen um, and probably would have been quite bad for the stakes trading um, business if they decided to give up that domain. Um, but then they've mm. also registered a number of trademarks, including Stake Australia, Stake Bet and Stake Casino. Online casinos are currently banned in Australia, um, but they are seeking a license for sports betting um, to compete alongside the likes of sports bet and points bet and all those other sports bet sites. Um, mm. So there you go. Um, Interesting. Do you have any thoughts? Can you imagine the, uh, the confusion in the courtroom? <laughs> the jury is, I don't, I don't know what, what the legal speak is. They've come to their, I've come to my decision. 
We find your favorite. I award the case to steak. <laughs> steak must now cease to use the name steak. And steak is now the only steak that is allowed to be steak. <laughs> Wait, sorry, what? <laughs> Can you just, uh, I'm a bit confused. Who? Wait a second. <laughs> who, who won? Who won? <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's uh, interesting that it's all come to a head. It, it does bring um, up an interesting question, right? Because they, they both have very simple names and one's operated outside of Australia and one's operating in Australia. But if they both have global ambitions, they, you know, there's... Yeah. Uh, or or ambitions in Australia even, um, which is kind of the, the core of this case. But uh, mm. there's, there's eventually going to be that clash. And I'm sure it's not the first time it's happened where a company has a trademark of a, of a name in a country and then they they go, okay, let's expand internationally. And yep. they don't have the trademarks or, or there's a, another company with a similar name so they can't operate because of confusion. Yeah, it's, um, mm. it is a weird. It's interesting. It's also weird because it is two money-related things that are very different. Yeah. You know, one is obviously a trading platform and one's a casino. So you don't want yeah. them to clash. And it, you could be, a customer could think that they're related because they're both money. They might think, oh yeah, this is just the trading wing and, and this is the casino. Um, mm. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you have any yeah, thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting, especially because Stake, the brokerage site, does also operate outside of Australia. Oh, do but they? Only in a few, only in a few markets. Okay. I think it's like New Zealand, the UK, maybe Brazil. If I'm okay. if I'm remembering that correctly, but only like a few. And right. I don't think they're in the US. But that is interesting. If Stake.com, the betting site, starts to go into some of those international markets, then there is a Stake versus Stake. Like it is like, wait, which one? I'm confused. Yeah. Um, interesting. I'm I'm a bit biased because obviously I know the Stake. Um, Australian share trading platform. I, hmm. I know the management there, but um, yeah, interesting to see where where things will fall. Um, it's just unfortunate. It's like an unfortunate situation because they both were founded within a year, so you can't really expect yeah. them to have known um, that this problem was going to come up. I mean, you know, either of them within the first year would have been incredibly small companies, and companies and trademarks are made all the time. Are made all the time, so there's no way you could yeah. always. You know, you could you could point and say, okay, that's going to be an issue. Um, yeah. You know, that crypto casino that launched six months ago, that has a similar name to us, is is going to be an issue. You you just couldn't have known. Um, mm. So it is it's just unfortunate. And I I don't know how this case will be found. I don't know what the legal situation is with this case. But yeah, is it certainly interesting? One certainly funny. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to give you a quick update on Birkenstock and then we can do a Q&A question or two. Yeah. Um, so I was talking about Birkenstock IPO last week. Um, the German shoe brand stock closed at $40.20 per share down from its opening trade of $41 per share, giving it a market value of $7.55 billion. The stock's opening price came in lower than its initial price of $46 set on Tuesday which was just shy of the midpoint of its expected range of $44 to $49 per share. So Birkenstock sold 10.75 million ordinary shares in the offering, raising about $495 million and initially valuing the company at $8.64 billion. 
Birkenstock had originally sought a valuation of up to $9.2 billion. So overall, they got this valuation of $8.64 billion. Right. Um, the company's market debut comes n- nearly 250 years after it was founded by the German cobbler J- Johann Adam Birkenstock. Uh, it remained under family control until 2021 when private equity powerhouse L. Catterton, uh acquired a majority stake in a deal that valued the business at $4.85 billion. Right. So, wow, they've, yeah. they've come out all right then. <laughs> they have come out all right. Yeah. In an interview on CNBC Squawk's uh, Squawk on the Street, Birkenstock CEO Oliver Reichert, Reichert, Reichert explained why the company decided to go public. Quote, the best thing for the brand would be staying family owned, but within the family there was so many problems. So uh, we go for the second best option and that's to go public and give the brand back to the people. Um, so since El Catadan acquired its stake, sales have grown and Birkenstock's valuation has nearly doubled between fiscal 2020 and 2022. Sales jumped from 728 million euros to 1.4, 1.24 billion euros. Over that time, the company grew direct consumer sales, strategically exited certain wholesale partnerships and focused on driving sales of items with high price points. So there you go. Yeah. So they, El Catadan acquired this majority stake in a deal that valued the business at $4.85 billion, and they IPO'd and, uh, in raising $495 million um, by selling 10.75 million shares. They got the valuation of $8.64 billion. So well done, El Catadan. Yeah, good, <laughs> good deal. Hopefully the family's yep. happy too. They got a decent deal, I guess. Well, yeah. I- yep. I guess I guess in hindsight they probably could have just taken it public themselves, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's oh, the well. trade off, right? You don't know how much how what it's going to be valued at. It's like do you want do you want five oh, billion dollars yeah. or do you want to roll the dice with with the public markets? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. Um, that's all I had to say on Birkenstock. Shall we do some Q and A? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, for those uh, that want to ask a Q&A question, please go to the most recent YouTube version of the podcast and drop us a comment, or you can uh, you can ask a question in the Spotify question box as well. Mm. Yeah. All right. I'll, uh, I'll ask this one to you. Hi, Hamish and Brandon. Thank you for the brilliant podcast. Love your content. Well, thank you. We appreciate you, thank you. Uh, listening and, and watching. Uh, just curious, what are your top three red flags of a company's management team? Top three red flags. I have been burnt by management teams in the past. I hate getting burnt by the management team. It's yeah. one of my biggest focuses now. It just sucks. It just sucks. Um, I think overall, the the one of the biggest red flags for me anyway is just when they overpromise, consistently overpromise, and consistently underdeliver. Yeah. They promise the world and then something happens and then they can't deliver and they go, oh, oh whoopsie daisy. And they don't, they don't really, I don't know, adjust their forecasts. They just keep promising the world and then they never deliver. So that's always pretty, pretty annoying. Um, I really don't like it when they skirt around issues. Um, when they sound like a politician, when they avoid answering or informing shareholders about the challenges and what's difficult, what the problems are at the business. Mm. Um, and I, I I copied your your th- your one a little bit here. I hate it when they get paid fat salaries and it literally does not matter whether the shareholders or the company does well or does poorly. <clears throat> they just get paid a mozza anyway. Yeah. That is so infuriating. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at, uh, well, at companies anywhere, but US companies, for example, you've got to go into that proxy filing and just take a look at how the compensation is actually structured. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's really complicated and it can be difficult to kind of go through it, but a lot of the time it's it's relatively simple. And if it's really complicated, mm. that that in and of itself could be a red flag because it potentially is that they're trying to like hide yeah. something or hide how they're actually getting paid. Um, but yeah, I think compensation is is a is a is a big sticking point. Um, yeah, just want to yeah. just um, to interrupt. We haven't released the courses that we're working on yet, um, but if you're interested, <clears throat> when we do release them. In Introduction to Stock Analysis, um, we do a deep dive uh, on explaining how to read the proxy filings and how to analyze um, the CEO's compensation. Um, so if you're interested in like, what's good, what's bad, that kind of thing. So if you're interested when it comes out, I'll let you know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the other one, I mean, they're all kind of similar to yours, but yeah, over salesy kind of CEOs on, on conference calls. Um, and not answering important questions. If, you know, you can go back in history and kind of find where there was a problem that went on in the company or where management made a distinct mistake and just listen to the conference calls and just, did they deflect mm-hmm. or did they, you know, answer them kind of honestly? Um, and then, you know, is the management team building ownership in the company um, themselves? Oh, that's a good one. Um, whether it, it could just be through their compensation, just holding onto the stock. Um but sometimes you'll see CEOs that earn $20 million and then every year they just sell it. And like, what do you, what do yeah. you think they're selling that? Do you think if they sell that stock, do you think they're holding 20 million in cash every year? No, they're buying other stocks <laughs> like, or they're buying property. They're choosing to invest that money in something other than what they're touching and what they're, you know, actually controlling. Like they're still investing the money. It's just, they're choosing not to invest yeah. it in what they own. And of course they're going to diversify to some extent, but it is refreshing to see when, they really are passionate about building ownership and benefiting alongside us. Um, that's that, that to me is a, a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. We all, all of our things are on a similar line. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Is that all, all of yours? Yeah. Yep. yep cool. Um, let's do one more for today. Um, oh, here we go. I, I, I do want to just cover on this one actually real quickly. This was, I'm asking myself this. Um, thanks for another great podcast. The intro is a bit out of control though. Can't you put half that stuff in a disclaimer or oh, yeah. in the comments? Uh, congrats on your license, Brandon. Thank you very much. Um, unfortunately, the answer is no. <laughs> um, we can't, I, that it does have to be said at the start of the podcast. Um, once you've heard it once, uh, there is skip functions. I'm not gonna, <laughs> you should listen to it every time, but you know there are skip yeah. functions, so you don't have to listen to it all the time. But um, unfortunately, yeah, that stuff does have to be at the start of the podcast. So apologies, um, but it just it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but thank you for understanding. Yeah. Um, all right, one more. Hamish, do you... Do you, do you, do you, do you invest in bond ETFs? Uh, no. Short answer, no. I, I think, I, honestly, I haven't really looked at bond ETFs. I think- um, Me neither. Yeah. I think with where rates are now, certainly it could be a consideration. I think, yeah, it's a genuine consideration to have bonds as a part of your your broader strategy, um, especially yep. if you're trying to be a little bit more defensive. It's not something I've personally looked into. Um in Australia, you can get pretty close to bond rates with like high yield savings or term deposits. And that's often just a lot simpler. Um, if you want just simplicity, um, 
to, to, to add kind of bonds into your portfolio, add like basically high yield cash basically. Um, but you know, it's not something I've, um, not, not something I've personally, um, looked into. Yeah. 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 Me neither. Honestly, me neither. Um, for similar reasons, um, that you mentioned. I'm also just like, I don't know. It's not a great answer, but I'm just not very inspired by bonds. I don't really have an interest in looking into them and tying down money. And I don't know, maybe if things, if interest rates go up a lot and the story changes even further then maybe i think as a young as a young person they're not as um appealing as a part of a strategy as when you're older and you're trying to preserve your capital or maybe you just want to smooth out your portfolio you know having more of a 40 60 if you have 40 bonds and and 60 stocks then when stocks go down 20 percent, your portfolio isn't down 20 percent. it's you know down you know quite a bit marginally less down like 12 percent or something like that so yeah, you know, as you yeah. get older and you're preserving, focusing more on preserving, and maybe you're looking to draw more on that capital, so you want there to be less volatility, less chance that you go through a five year period where it's down a lot, then 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 mm. that makes sense. But yeah, for for, for young people, um, I, I think I think it depends. Maybe maybe if you're storing money for like a to to buy a property in five years or something, you can buy some short term bonds. But yeah, mm. as I said, I mean, there's savings accounts that are pretty much get you, you know, 90, 95% of the way there. And that's usually a lot simpler for people to understand and manage. Right. All right. And with that said, we will wrap things up for today. So thanks guys for sending in your Q&A questions. Keep them coming. We love them. Um, We'll keep adding them into the podcast every week. Uh, Thanks Hamish, as always, for joining me. And yammering on public companies for an hour. Mm. Love it. Yeah, love it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll have some more updates for the Sam Bankman-Fried case next week, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> but yeah, apart from that, guys, um, thanks very much for tuning in. Love you all, and we'll see you guys next week. See you guys.